0: Good morning, church. Please turn your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2. We're going to be camped out today. Uh, While you're turning there, I just want to introduce myself. Uh, My name is Jake, and I'm one of the pastors. I have the privilege of serving as a pastor here at Venture Christian Church, uh, not just on Sunday morning, contrary to popular belief, but all during the week. And so it is a privilege to be here December 31st, last day of the year. Thank you for being here. If you are out of town but online, we just want to welcome you as well. Uh, Thank you for joining us. As we jump into our text today. Uh, As you're turning there, I would like to just share a little parable. And this is a parable that you have probably heard before. It's it's not a Christian one. As far as I could tell in my research, uh, this is a parable that comes to us from India. But a lot of other cultures have adopted it. And you've probably heard it before. It, It goes a little something like this. There were several blind men and they had been told that an elephant was in town. There was a literal elephant in the room. And so these blind men, they go down to where the elephant is, and because they can't see, they are all feeling around for this elephant. And when they find it, they are all touching different parts of the elephant. You've probably heard this, right? The first one is touching the elephant's trunk, the long trunk. And he says, wow, this elephant, this is a lot like a snake, To which the second guy, who happened to be touching the leg, is like, well, no, 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 this is not like a snake. This elephant is like a tree, a strong trunk. To which the third guy said, no, none of that's true. I'm grabbing his tail, and an elephant is like a rope. To which the fourth guy said, no, I'm touching something else, happened to be touching the tusk. No, an elephant is like a spear. And only a seeing person could understand that all of these things were True, yet an incomplete picture of what the elephant looks like. Have you ever gotten the sense that perhaps you've been working with a different metaphor? Perhaps a different playbook or maybe an incomplete one? How many of you are married, have been married, are dating, have dated before? Talk about different playbooks, right? (laughs) I didn't realize how tidy that I really wasn't until about two weeks after I got married and my wife constantly saying, you need to pick up, you need to pick up. And going on 10 years, that still has continued. I didn't realize, maybe some of you have had this experience, that you are the world's worst driver when you committed to a lifelong partnership that until you die, you are going to have somebody critique your driving every time you get behind the wheel. And true story, this is probably TMI, but we're going to talk about how the church is a family. So I didn't realize that I was lactose intolerant Until I got married, and my wife was like, eh, that's not super normal. (laughs) Today, I'd like to suggest that the same kind of thing, that we receive different metaphors or incomplete pictures, this idea happens when we look at our faith, and specifically this morning, the church. What is the church? How did God design the church to be? What does the scripture say that the church is and its function? We all come at this from very, very different backgrounds. Differences in our, our denominational upbringing or maybe a lack thereof. Differences in our vocational training that allow us to see the world through different specific lenses. Differences in our knowledge, our skills, our abilities, our KSAs. Uh, even to make it a little more spiritual, differences in our spiritual gifts. Differences in, differences in the passions that God has given us. And then we have outside influences in addition. Outside influences both correcting our misconceptions, good teaching, and outside influences corrupting our understanding of what the church is. All of these things are coming together to give us a picture of what the church is. And so today, I'd like to give you a beautiful picture of what the church is and see if you get anywhere near that ideal. In a nutshell, I'd like to teach you how to find the perfect church. And I'll do this by providing you with several metaphors this morning. So let's get started. Number one, the perfect church is a humanitarian organization. We can track this through scripture, right? Deuteronomy 24, when God's talking to the Israelites, he says this, when you are harvesting in your field and overlook a sheaf, do not go back to get it. Leave it for the foreigner, the fatherless, and the widow, so that the Lord your God may bless you in all the work of your hands. Do not take advantage of a hired worker who is poor and needy, whether that worker is a fellow Israelite or a foreigner residing in one of your towns. God has cared about the poor and taking care of them from the very beginning. The ministry of Jesus prioritizes reaching those who are considered lowly. Women, children, tax collectors, sinners, prostitutes, the poor. Too many references in the New Testament. Jesus prioritized the poor. The church is a humanitarian organization. James in his letter to the early church, reiterates, religion that, our Father, that God our Father accepts as pure and faultless as this, to look after orphans and widows in their distress. So as our first metaphor, much like a humanitarian, or dare I say a social justice organization, the perfect church then is one that, above all else, prioritizes humanitarian causes, social justice. Number two, the perfect church is a social club. Looking in the Old Testament, Ecclesiastes 4, two are better than one because they have a good return for their labor. If either of them falls down, one can help the other up. But pity anyone who falls and has no one to help them up. Proverbs 17, again with Solomon, a friend loves at all times and a brother is born for a time of adversity. Moving into the New Testament, Jesus says in Matthew 18, For where two or three gather in my name, there I am with them. And Luke, in the book of Acts, describes the early church like this as one of the phrases he uses. All the believers were together and had everything in common. Much like a social club, the perfect church then is one that, above all else, prioritizes getting our social and community needs met through a brother and sisterhood. Number three, the perfect church is a country club. And Bear with me, this, is, this metaphor is not in scripture, but I think you'll see it there. Like a good country club, there is an exclusive nature to our faith, right? In John 14, Jesus answered, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Like a good country club, there is membership, right? Romans 12, for just as each, of, each one of us has, or for just as each of us has one body with many members, There's that membership language. And these members do not all have the same function, so in Christ, though many, we form one body. Like a good country club, you kind of pay your dues to participate. This is a little bit of a stretch, but bear with me. Acts 4, the early church. This is what Luke describes them as. There were no needy persons among them, for from time to time those who owned land or houses sold them, brought the money from the sales, and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Like a good country club, you won't have to lift a finger if you don't want to. In fact, Luke 12, Jesus is describing himself in a parable. Jesus is the master and we are the servants. This is what he said. It will be good for those servants whose master finds them watching when he comes. Truly, I tell you, the master will dress himself to serve and will have the servants recline at the table and come and wait on them. Much like a country club, the the perfect church is one that, above all else, prioritizes the benefits that we receive from being a dues-paying member over all else. The perfect church is also an academic institution where we learn. We are transformed by what we know and then what we feel and then what we do. comes as a result of what we think. Romans 12, do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Proverbs 18, the heart of the discerning acquires knowledge, for the ears of the wise seek it out. Moving to the New Testament again, 2 Peter, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And then Ephesians, where we're spending our text today, Ephesians 1, it says, I keep asking that the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the glorious Father, may give you the spirit of wisdom and revelation so that you may know him better. Much like an academic institution, the perfect church then is one that above all else prioritizes understanding and knowledge. Knowledge acquisition is the name of the game. And my final metaphor, the perfect church is a counseling center. And bear with me, this one doesn't play out as well, but just FYI, I'm a big proponent of counseling. My mom is a professional licensed counselor. So I don't want to denigrate that profession at all, but you'll see, you'll see what I mean. The church is a counseling center. You're here to receive professional pastoral care when you come to the church from trained professionals. Ephesians 4, so Christ himself gave the pastors to equip his people for works of service. Ephesians 5, if you're not doing well in your marriage or your relationships, Ephesians 5, God prioritizes that. We're here to help you work through that. However, let each one of you Love his wife as himself and let the wife see that she respects her husband. Struggling with any kind of addiction or struggling with a specific sin issue that you can't seem to kick, the church is there to help you walk through it. 2 Corinthians 5, all this is from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. Struggling to find a purpose in your life, the church is there to help you find it. You need to look no further than the great commission or the great commandment. Therefore, go and make disciples. Love your neighbor as yourself. You see, much like a counseling center, the perfect church then is one that, above all else, prioritizes our personal well-being and appropriate coping mechanisms as we interact with other people. In essence, the church is built for you church is built for you no matter who you are the church was designed to serve you whether you're a man or a woman a kid or a senior adult black or white liberal or conservative rich or poor professional or amateur the church was built with you in mind and the crazy thing is it's a place where all of our preferences come together to form a perfect unity where we get our way all the time a perfect church then is one that where we never feel uncomfortable where the music happens to be the perfect volume every single week and it happens to be the perfect style for my mood every single week, where the sermon challenges me not too much but just enough to keep me coming back every week. A perfect church is where I get access to a community that looks exactly like me, no weirdos allowed. The perfect church is where everyone thinks like me, I don't want any Trump fans, any Patriot fans, and any liberals up in here. I'm going to get an email about that one. (laughs) The church is where everybody looks like me. Little kids, ick. Senior adults, gross. People of different ethnic backgrounds, no thank you. The perfect church is one where everyone struggles with the same sin issues that I do. I don't mess with divorce, I don't mess with sexual issues, and I don't mess with drug addicts here. And the perfect church is where everyone prioritizes the same missional outreach that I do. Everybody knows the only right missions are children, women, and battered animals. Everything else doesn't matter. <laughs> you get what I'm saying here. I'm afraid that when we view the church this way, the only person that we're really worshiping is ourselves. Someone pulled me aside several years ago. I don't remember who it was, otherwise I'd give him credit. And you probably heard a, a quote similar to this. They said, if the Jesus that you worship looks, thinks, believes, and behaves the exact same way that you do, you might not be worshiping Jesus. You might actually be worshiping a God created in your own image. In the Bible, we call that idolatry. So those of you who are here for the Hallmark moment, you know exactly the plot twist, right? When I say I'm going to help you find the perfect church, Here's the reality, the perfect church does not exist. And all the metaphors that I used, those are good ways to view the church in some senses of the word. But it pained me to take a lot of those verses out of context because ultimately the church is not about those things. And we're gonna dive into scripture to see exactly what the Bible says about the purpose of the church. Suffice it to say for now, there are legitimate reasons that Christians and non-Christians alike are skeptical about the church. This may be your first time. You may be watching this a year from now wondering if venture is the place for you or whether the church is even a place for you. There are a million, there are a million reasons that I hear. And a lot of them are legitimate of, of how people have been hurt in the church. But I'd venture to guess that a lot of those reasons are because people that hurt you have misunderstandings about the purpose of the church or perhaps you even have a misunderstanding about God's purpose for the church. So just like the guys in, in my first illustration, The blind men who are trying to figure out what this thing is, we will use four different metaphors that the scriptures use to describe the church. And before I jump into that, when I say the church, there's a lot of nuance here in the scriptures. But what I mean for our purposes today, when I say the church, I simply mean the people of God, the gathered people of God. Sometimes it's called the church. Sometimes it's called the people of God. Sometimes it's called the saints. This is the gathered people of God. And here are four metaphors. Let me start with the first one. The church is a building. You didn't think I was going to say that, right? We know that the church is not a building. And in one sense of the word, that's very true. The church is not this physical space right here at 14501 Hazeldale Parkway. The church is not this space. The church is where people are gathered together. So the church is not a building, If I can get on a side tangent, I was always told growing up, don't run in church. It's God's house. Don't sin in church. You know, you save that for the other six days. Don't cuss in church. That's the Lord's house. It's not the Lord's house anymore. (laughs) It is not. When Jesus died on the cross and the temple curtain was torn in two, and then the Holy Spirit was given, we'll see in our verses today, this is no longer the Lord's house, but the Holy Spirit dwells inside of us. Jesus doesn't live inside us. Jesus was a man. But the Holy Spirit lives inside each and every one of us who have been baptized and have received that gift. So the church is a building, but here's what I'm meaning. In Ephesians chapter 2, look down at verse 19. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with God's people and also members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief cornerstone. In him... The whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And in him, you too are being built together to become a dwelling in which God lives by his Spirit. There's a lot here in this section. And I want to highlight just a few things, just to whet your appetite. The people of God, the church, is supposed to build themselves not around their own preferences, you'll see this, but around Christ. Around King Jesus, that's what Christ means as king, the anointed one, we are to build ourselves as, with King Jesus as our chief cornerstone, the structure around which the entire building is built. The perfect church, then, is God-centered. I want to pull out another nuance. The church is built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The apostles here, meaning the 12 disciples and Paul, and a few other people in the New Testament are referred to as The apostles the leaders of the early church, and then the prophets. Generally speaking, these are the guys from the Old Testament who are mouthpieces of God. So we are built on the foundation, right? Jesus is the cornerstone, the Christ, the Messiah, the King. He's the cornerstone, but the rest of the foundation is built from the work and the writing of the prophets and the apostles. So we have both the Old Testament and the New Testament that not only tell us what they did, but also tell us more about how to think, how to live perfect church is built on the work of the apostles. And the building imagery here is actually used, being used about the temple. Paul is comparing the temple to our bodies. And in one sense of the word, you've probably heard the verse. Uh, in 1 Corinthians, it's talking about how your body is a temple to the Holy Spirit. And that's absolutely true. And that's why Paul tells us that sexual sin is, is a way bigger deal than even other types of sin because we are sinning against our own body and that's a temple of the Holy Spirit. So in one sense, your individual body is a temple of the Holy Spirit. But when we read this passage in Ephesians 2, there is another sense in which our collective gathering, that our collective bodies are also a collective temple to this Holy Spirit. You are being built together, as in y'all are being built. This is a plural you. We don't really have a good word for that in English. Y'all are being built together. It's not just you. It's the collective of us being built together. So the church is a building, kinda. What else? The church is a bride. As a married man, can I just say that this particular metaphor makes me a little bit uncomfortable, especially being a man being referred to as part of the bride makes me feel a little bit weird. And if you turn to over a couple pages to Ephesians 5, you'll see where I'm going to look. I just want to say, I love my wife dearly, right? <laughs> if you start a story like that, it never ends well. I love my wife dearly. But the top words that I would use to describe her wouldn't be without wrinkle, without blemish, or blameless. It's going to be a long trip to her parents' house after this. <laughs> But truly, imperfect marriages can impact how we view this particular metaphor. Ephesians 5, starting in verse 25, Jesus is comparing, or Paul is comparing the church to a marriage relationship. Husbands, love your wives just as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her to make her holy, cleansing her by the washing with water through the word, and to present her to himself as a radiant church without stain or wrinkle or any other blemish, but holy and blameless holy and blameless. Let's note a few things about this particular metaphor. If you look at the scripture right there, Christ died for the church. Christ died for the church. That's what it, the, uh, Paul means when he's saying he gave himself up for her. And I want you to notice, it's not just for you. And what I'm about to say might fly in the face of some of the things that you've been taught. And let me nuance it. There are certainly a few verses in the scriptures that indicate that Jesus gave himself specifically for, for individuals. I look at a place like Galatians 2.20. Paul makes the claim of himself that Jesus gave himself up for me. And I'd argue there's a lot bigger context to that and why he uses that. But it's there. So I can see why you would believe that Jesus came just for you. But let me nuance this a little bit by saying that far, far, far more references in scripture, I would say At least 95% of the times that Jesus is talking about dying on the cross, giving himself up, uh, ushering in a new kingdom, his mission on earth here. 95% of the time, he is talking to a collective group of people. He is talking to a collective you, not just an individual. So in as much as you are an individual part of the collective church, Jesus died for you. Jesus gave himself up for you. But do not miss this. And don't mistake the intent. You are not the protagonist of all creation. You yourself are not the protagonist of the Bible. The Bible and God, they don't revolve around you. And that's great news. We don't have to carry that burden of being the protagonist. You don't have to carry that burden. And it is good news that it's not just for you, that it's for everybody here and for everybody outside these four walls. That is good news might seem like a slap in the face to our western ideals of individualism but let me tell you the collective that Jesus died for that is good news another nuance here Christ died for the church i want you to see here that the church is part of god's design this is not some backup plan this is the intent from the beginning i want to preface this by saying i don't ever want to excuse sinful behavior done by christians and nor should you, nor should we be apologists for sinful behavior that people do on behalf of God. But I'm hearing this sentiment more and more and more frequently, and I think we have to nip this in the bud when we're talking with people, with love. People say things like, I can follow Jesus by myself. I don't need other people. Or I I hear this even more, "I, I I can follow Jesus by myself. I don't need the church. You need to be careful of that because the entire Bible from Genesis to Revelation contradicts the sentiment that people have when they say that they can do it alone. And we need to be very, very careful if we're going to just throw that entire meta-narrative of scripture out just because it makes us a little uncomfortable, just because we've been hurt in the past. God doesn't give us a pass to say, you can just ditch all my people. You can just ditch the bride that I died for. We are never given that permission. And this was convicting to me in my research. We ought to be a little bit more careful when we talk about people's spouses. Right? You don't want people gossiping about your husband or your wife or somebody in your family. And yet we are so, so eager to just rake the bride of Christ through the coals to fit our own means Either by making the church about ourselves or by bashing on the church or by bashing on God's people, really is what that means. May we all repent of the times that we do that. The church is a building, the church is a bride, the church is a body. This is probably the most familiar metaphor that you guys have heard. It's part of our daily Christianese, right? The body of Christ, the body of believers. This body is healthy, this body is unhealthy. Etc. This is my favorite metaphor. Unfortunately, I only have a little bit of time to unpack it, but turn back to Ephesians chapter 4. If you're going to do any homework, I would encourage you, Ephesians 4, 1 Corinthians 12, really unpack this idea of the body, and it's probably the, the most extended metaphor that we have of the church. Ephesians 4, I'm just going to jump into verse 15 and 16. Paul's describing the church. Instead, Speaking the truth in love, we will grow to become in every respect the mature body of him who is the head, that is Christ. From him the whole body, joined and held together by every supporting ligament, grows and builds itself up in love as each part does its work. Christ is the head. Much like the cornerstone that we read about in the building metaphor, Christ is the head of the body that is the church. He's the person around which the entire body is built. We can beat that drum until our arms fall off. The church is built around King Jesus. The church is God-centered, and all the metaphors bring that out. Another nuance here, it involves everybody. I wish I could go into a longer discussion about spiritual gifts, because that's what this passage is talking about. But suffice it to say, you receive when you are baptized and you receive the gift of the Holy Spirit one of the benefits that you receive is a spiritual gift or a collection of spiritual gifts. With the explicit understanding in scripture that those gifts are to be used to build up the church. We are all given gifts. And we are all given, in my opinion, different gifts and everybody in this room has a different gift mix. Some are spiritual gifts, some are just different passions that you have, others of which are gifts that maybe you have fostered yourself, knowledge, skills, abilities all these things come together to give us a unique mix of people in our gathering. Even the gifts that seem insignificant, the body needs them to be engaged. The church needs them to be engaged, both for your own sake, for the church's sake, and because Christ commands us to engage in that way. How are you using your spiritual gifts to build up the body? Another nuance here, The church is about growing and maturity. That's one of the roles. That's one of the roles of the church, growing and maturity. Just as our physical bodies are in a constant state of growing and maturity and cells die and come back, not come back to life, they are regenerated. So it is with the body of Christ that we are constantly instructed to mature in our faith, that we don't come just on Sunday morning To consume religious goods and services and then live the rest of our week as if none of this mattered. That we are instructed to continue to grow in our knowledge and our understanding as we pursue Christ. That's one of the roles of the church. The last nuance is speaking the truth in love. Speaking the truth in love. The church should be viewed as a bastion of truth and the church should be viewed as a bastion of love. Yet most of you who who interact with people who aren't Christians know that people don't know us for either of those things, really. And that's a problem. Truth and love are not mutually exclusive. Rather, if you love someone, you're willing to tell them the truth. And if you're truthful with someone, that is loving. We speak the truth in love in a perfect church. So the church is like a building, the church is like a bride, the church is like a body. Bear with me on this last point, the church is brothers and sisters. I needed to keep a fourth B in there to continue my alliteration. The church is like a family. The church is a family. This passage is in 1 Timothy, though it's described elsewhere. Although I hope to come to you soon, I am writing you these instructions so that, if I am delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and the foundation of the truth. We are family. I've got all my sisters and me. I'm not going to sing it. <laughs> they would let me go after that. The household that Paul is referring to here is, is a lot more nuanced than most of the households that we live in, right? In Hamilton County, we've got mom, dad, 2.1 kids, a dog, a nice house in the suburbs. The household that Paul is referring to is a lot bigger than that. Usually has the patriarch and then his kids and their families and perhaps their kids and their families. Usually three to four generations living under the authority and a lot of times under the same roof as one guy. This is not just people that they share blood with either. This is slaves. These are paid laborers. These are people who... Uh, The patriarch is kind of the patron for them to continue to do their work. These households in the Roman culture that Paul is writing to are very, very complex. And what I want you to see here is they're very diverse. And people probably had all kinds of different opinions, yet Paul refers to the church as a household. A household. You guys all come from different family backgrounds. And if you've ever been in a family for more than about five minutes, it's very, very easy to see it's not about you it's not about you and scripture after scripture after scripture would testify to that that it's not about being served but serving that it's not about having my preferences met but it's about giving up my preferences for my brothers so the church is Christ centered but secondarily the church is also others centered As I conclude my message today, I want you to hear my heart in this. Because I can come off as kind of a jerk sometimes. It's part of the family that we're talking about. My wife's like, you need to tone it down a little bit, weirdo. But I want you to hear my heart. We are family. You guys are my brothers, my sisters. Dare I say, some of you are like my fathers and my mothers. My pastor's heart, it laments the way that really, really, really good things that churches do, that gathered bodies of believers... Really, really good things have become ultimate things. And a church without Christ in his proper place on the throne is not a church at all. A church with you at the center is no church at all. My heart weeps more and more and more folks that I talk to or I talk to people who are having conversations with others. More and more people I hear are leaving their home churches. More and more people I know are leaving places they've worshipped for a long time. More and more people are walking away from church completely. And my heart weeps. Because in more cases than not, I find that people are falling prey to a very Western ideal. This is not a biblical ideal, but a very Western ideal that it is all about me. They fall prey to the church of the consumer and when things aren't going perfectly, they decide they're going to go to a place where all their preferences are met temporarily. And then they find, much like wherever they left, that the new place has exactly the same problems because we're family. The church is not me-centered. My teacher's heart, the teacher's heart in me wants you to know that God did not design the church to be this way, that it has evolved into this way inappropriately. And my brother's heart Wants to encourage you to engage with that church, be it at Venture, at another place, the church global. Engage in that. I don't know how to find the perfect church, and I'd argue that the perfect church does not exist. But I can give you a few tidbits on places to start. Is Christ the head? Is Christ the cornerstone around which your church is built? Is your church built on the work and the writings of the apostles and the prophets? Are you being challenged to grow in your maturity? There's a lot of different ways to do that, but are you continually being challenged to grow in your maturity? If not, why not? Are you using your spiritual gifts to build up the body? If not, why not? Are you truly engaging in the family of God? by participating in the messiest parts of family life, the parts that make us uncomfortable, the parts that make us want to crawl up in our shells? Are we participating in those as a family? I'll end my message with a teaser. We're about to jump into a long-form series on Philippians. And in Philippians, Paul is writing to a church that's similar in a lot of ways to venture into a lot of the churches in our Western culture. And we'll get to unpack verse by verse through the book of Philippians exactly how God desires his church to live. And as we'll see, one of the themes is joy. And one of the themes is Christ being the center. And one of the themes is giving up of yourself so that your brother can come to know Christ better. Philippians chapter two, you probably are familiar with this verse. It says this, do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Each of you should not look only to your own interest, but also to the interest of the others. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. Please pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this day and we thank you for who you are the identity that we find in you. God, we thank you for your church. God, we love your church. We love your church. And we repent of all the times that we've slandered her, all the times that we have not given her our best, that we have not engaged in family life. We repent of those, and God, we seek to do your will in our lives, to build our lives around you, to give up of ourselves, so that others can have. And God, we ask that you just continue to grow us, continue to mature us, continue to make us more like your son, Jesus. It's in his name that we pray these things. Amen.